In a world in which this experiment with commercial, you know, with credit and debt, and then this really messed up experiment with irredeemable currency, if that goes away, as that collective memory fades, who knows how it'll impact us neurologically, and who knows what we'll become. Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using to buy Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into today's interview, I do have a message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Ledger and the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of the new Nano S Plus, And with its larger screen, it makes it easier for you to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. Now, the Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. And you know what? I've been a customer of Ledger since 2017. I love my original Nano S and I now love the S Plus. Ledger is the smartest way and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. If you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up, it is BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino. Trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they also have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money cannot buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against other people and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino really is the best online casino for Bitcoiners. So if you want to find out more, head over to BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award. That is at bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. Please remember to gamble responsibly. Next up, it is BlockFi. Now, BlockFi bridges the world of traditional finance and Bitcoin, empowering you for this future financial world. And for the people of the U.S., who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stack in more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides the easiest way to earn more Bitcoin. There are no fees to use the card, no annual fee and no foreign transaction fees. And you can get 1.5% back in Bitcoin on every card purchase. But also, not just that, you can also get 2% back in Bitcoin on every dollar spent over 50000 annually. If you'd like to stack sats with BlockFi, then please head over to BlockFi.com to find out more and read the terms and conditions all available at BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Also, we have the Pacific Bitcoin Conference hosted by Swan Bitcoin on November the 10th and 11th, 2022 in sunny Los Angeles. Now, I've known Jan, Brady and Corey for years, and they're pulling out all the stops to make this the biggest Bitcoin-only event ever. I'll be emceeing the conference alongside Natalie Brunel and Stefan Levera, and there's going to be an incredible lineup of speakers. This conference is going to be the right mix of education and good fun with unique experiences such as a surf simulator and an 80s arcade gaming lounge, which I cannot wait to see as I am a gamer from the 80s. They are inviting all the smartest minds in the Bitcoin space to discuss a range of topics from macro to nation state adoption, mining and to lightning. Swan are also offering a massive 20% discount to this amazing event to listeners of my show. So just head over to pacificbitcoin.la and use the code PETER at the checkout. That is pacificbitcoin.la, P-A-C-I-F-I-C-B-I-T-C-O-I-N.la and use the code PETER. Dan, nice to meet you, man. Thanks, you too. Thank you for coming in. Um, you sent me a really interesting paper recently. 
Thanks. And uh, I read through it and I was like, huh, I think I want to talk about this. Um, we get a lot of things sent to us, uh, a lot of requests, a lot of things, a lot of papers. Uh, it's very hard to uh, give everyone the time, but some things really stand out and really, are really interesting. And I'm, I will suggest everyone to go to the show notes and uh, click on the link and go read the paper. But specifically this kind of like idea around uh, the fiat brain, which I, I want I want to talk to you and get into it. But you won't be known to the audience. This is your first ever podcast interview. It is. It <laughs> is. So uh, can you just give everyone a bit of a background to who you are? Sure. So they, they understand who I'm talking to. So I am Dan, and I worked in education for 35 years, teaching history and economics and English. I was a high school principal in 20, and I was also a musician, kind of did a whole bunch of things. In the 2013-ish, 2014, I was teaching an economics class and learned about Bitcoin and was like, hey, brought, brought this sort of thing to class. I didn't know anything about it. And um, actually purchased, you know, on eBay, a little bit of Bitcoin. I didn't know what I was doing. What you download the whole, back then I had to download the whole, what is it, the whole block, the whole... Blockchain? Yeah, like the whole thing. You couldn't just, there was no exchange. Um, you, could, you had the command line interface. For yeah, like, the and I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, yeah. I, I left education because computing got too com complicated. Well, um, was, was that in the time where you would buy it and you would just trust that they would send you the Bitcoin? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And they did. Yeah. Um, but I didn't know, you know. So then I lost track of it and finished up my career and retired. And um, in, 20, in 2020, in the fall of 2020, I went up, and my sister lives in Maine, and was hanging out with her. And she was like, we have to talk about Bitcoin. And I was like, okay, let's talk about it. And that was kind of the beginning of really starting to understand it and doing all of my hundreds of hours of research and learning. And she and I would go on these long walks and talk about Bitcoin. And, and every couple of days, there was another like, oh, my God. Yep. And I didn't, you know, I mean, I kind of fancy myself, I guess this is a little pretentious, but a little bit of an, an intellectual. But I came at it non-intellectually in 2013, 2014. I was like, this is cool. And then in 2020, I came at it like, oh, this is probably going to, accrue some value and maybe I could make some money because I'm retired. You know. And then over the next year, I was like, this is much more important than an investment or a little, you know, spare change. Yeah. We did an interview yesterday with Peter Doyle and he said, I would happily give up all the gains I can make from Bitcoin for it just to succeed. Totally agree. It's, it's such an important technology for the world. It's such a, an important change to the monetary system. And it was, it was quite a profound thing, the way he said it. It was really interested me. And Okay, so talk to me about this paper. Okay. Like, where did it come from? So I, I'll give you the whole story. Yeah. Um, in the late 1980s, I was a good drinker in high school and college. I, was, I, was, I wasn't a pro, but I was semi-pro. And... Um, I stopped drinking in the late 1980s because I wanted to have a career and maybe have a family and um, started on that path, that kind of like self-reflective path, therapy, Buddhism, meditation. I taught meditation, I was the whole nine yards. And I got to a point where I started studying neuroscience and neurology and how our bodies work and how our brains work. And the more I studied 
neurology, the more I came to realize, you know, we don't lead with cognition. We lead with our bodies. Our bodies tell us, you know, they dictate sort of what we feel and what we're going to do. We can use our minds to, to create stories and narratives around those feelings. So like, you know, you're, you're in a relationship, your girlfriend breaks up with you, you get this terrible feeling, you know, you're anxious, your amygdala is squeezing, you're like, ah! Um, and you create a narrative, right? So you create a story of she's a terrible person, la, la, la. Um, but we lead with, with our bodies, and it's neurotransmitters, it's hormones, it, it's the way our electrical impulses work. So that became the thing that I was most interested in. And it was across all spectrum. So I wrote a little book called, you know, Be Behaving Badly, The Neurology of, of Acting Like an Asshole. And it's all about why we behave like assholes based upon responding to the impulses in our bodies. But why do we behave like assholes? Um, because we are completely unaware that we're creating stories and narratives around feelings, and we can't step back and say, why am I having this feeling? Why is, why, what's going on in my body right now that's compelling me to act a certain way? So are, are we kind of shooting from the hip, reacting rather than... I would say most dissecting. people are shooting from the hip, yeah. I mean, I think that the, the benefit of therapy, on one hand, is that it provides you with some tools to be able to step back and observe yourself in the world. But it doesn't change us. We have this neurological sort of homeostatic point based upon who we are, how we were raised, you know, what happened in utero. I mean, it's very, you know, it's complex. Um, but we're, we are wired from birth. We are wired as we grow up to react to stimuli a certain way. Um, so therapy gives us awareness but it doesn't change the fact that that's how our bodies react. So knowing about your body, take being able to say, ooh, this is how I'm feeling, and actually being able to play with that. So you can use imagination. Um, you can use fan. I give you an example. I, you know, um, I was in a, a very uh, committed relationship. It didn't work out. I was in extraordinary pain. Like my body was just not happy. And in your 50s when that happens, I don't know how old all y'all are, but when you're in your 50s and I'm at the end of my 50s, one's heart and one's body do not respond well to so much adrenaline and cortisol. So I had to trick my body into um, feeling better. So, you know, you can do that with chemicals, but I didn't want to do that with chemicals. So I tricked my body by creating a narrative that this person who had, you know, that we had broken up was a bad person. She's not. She's a great person. Um, but it helped me go through the process of um, a year of healing where my body felt better and better. And then I could come back to like, okay, yeah, she's a great person. Um, that's how neurology works. Where we are, in many ways, we don't have awareness around it. And that lack of awareness can be catastrophic. Because I would have been an asshole if I had written her shitty emails, if I'd, you know, gone on Facebook, which I don't use, and said, oh, you know, and that's the asshole step. The tweaking one's thought process to feel better, well, that's just figuring out how to move through a world that can be hard. Are you aware of all my back issues I've had? A teeny bit. Yeah, so I've had uh, back issues now for a couple of years. Uh, I had a microdiscotomy um, because I had a herniated disc and sciatica, and uh, that repaired it. And I still had the occasional issue with my back. Um, 
And I've talked about it on Twitter and talked about it on the podcast. I've had a lot of people, like an incredible amount of people write to me. Uh, quite a few have recommended a book called Healing Back Pain and mm. refer to the idea that I don't need surgery. By the way, I did need surgery. I had a herniated disc, yes. you know. But since then, that some of the issues I may, I may be having are actually to do with some kind of trauma in uh, my past I've not fully dealt with, which there is you know, some truth to that. If I was going to be vulnerable and honest on this podcast, mm. I, I have a, a divorce which was traumatic yeah. and I've never fully dealt with that. Do you buy into that? Absolutely. There's a lot of data out there that point to that our, you know, our bodies store so much experience. And there's actually a book called... Um, the Body Knows the Score, I think, or The Body Remembers the Score, which okay. is all about uh, veterans from war and how they come back and why they experience this thing we call PTSD, because their bodies store the memories. Um, and, you know, I had experienced complex trauma as a child, the death of a sister, tricky childhood. And um, th my body stored all of that. It, it actually created for me a very difficult experience around relating in an intimate way to other people. And that would became part of my practice over those, you know, years and years of, of I won't call it sobriety because I'm not sure that I was a drunk, but of kind of going on that, pro, you know, that path of trying to understand why I moved through the world the way I did and relating on a sort of deep and emotional and connected level to other human beings has always been really hard for me. So where is the collective part of this? When you say collective. So, so your thesis, how Bitcoin ends for its destruction of our collective and individual neurologies. Right. Uh -huh. we've, we've, um, we've just talked about individual yeah. elements of neurology. What, what, is, what do you mean by collective? So there's a, you know, there's a, in my opinion, there's a collective way in which we move through the world as, you know, sort of this human organism that, um, it's not only imitative, like, oh, I see someone driving a Lamborghini. That's look, that looks exciting. I think I'm going to, you know, <laughs> I aspire to having a Lamborghini. Yeah. Um, but it's almost like part of collective memory. There's this epigenetic part of us that we, I don't think we understand very well, you know, that we are hundreds of years, thousands of years of human experience is encoded and embedded in us at a, like at a cellular level. And so when I say that Bitcoin saves the collective, I'm almost thinking of it in terms of the Borg from Star Trek. The terrifying thing about the Borg is they're a collective who feel that, you know, they're righteous, they're good, you know, they're like, we're fine, you know, resistance is futile, and we're going to add you to our own. And that's what it feels like the human species has slowly become. And then my thesis is because it began with the commercial revolution and the creation of credit and debt. And in my paper, I don't have a ton of, you know, data to back up such a thesis because anybody could say, well, why didn't it begin X, Y, or Z? But I think the collective downfall of humanity in terms of our collective neurologies, began several hundred years ago. And have you done any work looking at kind of like collective behaviors of humans versus, say, animals or insects? We were discussing bees the other days, and bees tend to operate in a collective and know their role, and there's almost an automation that's coded into them of how they operate. 
whereas with animals in the animal kingdom, there's like maybe more of a hierarchy, but there's a little bit more individualism. And then when you get to humans, uh, we can act collective, like in a collective, but we can fork out individually because we are a little bit more conscious, higher intelligence mm. to make decisions. You can see collective responses or behaviors on Twitter or outside of Twitter, but you can also see individuals rise up and, and, and be slightly different. Have you compared these? Yeah, so I I would I don't know if I totally agree with that analysis. That, okay. that um that human beings can act individually. I don't I my belief is that when we're when we seemingly are branching out from the, you know, the zeitgeist of the collective, we're actually not. We're branching out into something we've seen, something that fits us in terms of our neurology. Uh, but it's not, it's not this idea of, you know, individuality. I, I believe that human beings are relational beings. And the re- one of the reasons there's so many mental health struggles right now is that uh, we we think somehow that we're not. And we think somehow that things, money, stuff, can, can fill that part of us that is relational. Which is one of the reasons I believe that um, libertarianism is a, you know, I know I'm going to incur the wrath of some of your audience, but I'm not so sure that Bitcoin is a libertarian construct. Okay. I think it's a communitarian construct. Small communities who are working toward the benefit of each other, which is what the network is, right? We want more and more people to be part of the network because that strengthens the network. Hoarding Bitcoin is antithetical to its, its strength and its success. Um, so I'm not sure... Can you expand on that? What, what, hoarding Bitcoin, why is that anti, antithetical to, to its strength? Because if, somebody, if someone or a country or an individual collects more and more Bitcoin, the network is inherently weakened because the network is strengthened by, you know, the more nodes there are that are validating transactions, the more uh, people who are, who are participating in this, not only as an asset class does it seemingly become... Uh, more valuable, but as a relational construct. So, are you talking here about distribution of coins rather than, or are you talking about the movement of coins and being used uh, as a medium of exchange? I think distribution more than than a medium of exchange. So, um, when Michael Seder uh, has one hundred twenty thousand Bitcoin, uh, that is a that is a large concentration, the network would be stronger if there was 120,000 people owning one Bitcoin each. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I can agree with that, but I don't know if it's a zero-sum game. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure if it's a zero-sum game either. I just look at Bitcoin. I mean, I don't look at Bitcoin as an investment. I did it first. I don't look at, Bit, see Bitcoin as, uh, you know, something that, you know, like Michael Saylor says, you know, it's going to be digital real estate. This is going to be your, you know, your block on on Madison Avenue. I don't look at it like that either. I see it as this thing that we don't totally understand. And yet, if we had a monetary system or a system of information exchange, a system of sharing information and transacting that was absolutely inviolable and that we could, you know, we could trust because it's being verified by the millions and millions of nodes that are verified, then all of a sudden, that relational aspect heals us. We're no longer in this, this, this frenzy of, of 
following the collective toward the cliff. And the, in this case, I mean trying to make as much money as we possibly can and use that money as a way to experience the world. So you think uh, the issue here is the rat race, the accumulation of stuff, whether that is status or assets or property, that that never you never really get to the enough point. So like somebody's got 100 grand wants a million, somebody's got a million wants mm. 10 million. There's like that constant more, more, more. Um, eats away at our time. We uh, trade off health often. Not everyone, but sometimes we trade off health, time with our family, love, all for this. You, is, is this where you're going? Well, if I were to go back to neurology, yeah. you know, and sort of, because that's, that's sort of the, the thesis of the, yeah. of the paper. Um, my belief is that we, we have a homeostatic, again, like when I say a homeostatic like sort of place, as a collective and as individuals, we are um, stimulated in a, in a certain way, and 300 years ago, that baseline was different than it is now. 300 years ago, somebody could go off into the woods and go bobcat hunting, and that would, that would meet their need for adrenaline and dopamine. That would meet their sort of stimulatory needs. 300 years later, trillionaires need to fly to the, you know, fly out into outer space. Um, so my belief is that the, it's not so much the accumulation of stuff, it's the need for stimulation, the need for adrenaline, the need for dopamine, the need for this, this physiological experience. And we're building, we've built over generations and centuries a tolerance. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, so there, was, there will always be a need for stimulation. Absolutely. Okay, and that's not a bad thing. No. But we've built a individual and collective tolerance, depending on who you are. And two things come to mind. Firstly, if we've built that tolerance, it becomes harder and harder to, to achieve that dopamine hit that we need. But, but also, are we so wrapped up in our life that we're not spending enough time on stimulation I'm spending more time on we think on the things we think that will get us to stimulation, which is stimulation. Yeah, right. So if I'm you know day trading because I want to become a millionaire, that's giving me my dopamine hits. Just right. that process. So I, I think that the journey and the end are neurologically um, compatible. The journey to become a multimillionaire and the actual being, and then using that money to I don't know. By the dopamine hits or the adrenaline. There's no, I wouldn't distinguish between the two. And can we potentially create fake goals that we think we think we want to be a millionaire and when we get there, there's a, like a disappointment? Sure. And then we look for, and I wouldn't, yeah, I don't know if I would use the word disappointment. I would use, I think I would use the word again neurologically, like a lack of stimulation. Like, oh, I need more. What am I going to do? I'm going to buy a BMW. Well, that didn't do it. Well, I'm going to buy, you know, a Maserati. Well, that didn't do it. Now what am I going to do? It's Aston Martin. That does it. Is that, are they good? Yeah. Uh, I, I, don't even, I don't have a car. No, but actually every, <laughs> everything you're saying is true. Yeah. Yeah. I've been through all these steps. Yeah. And it doesn't, you know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of, what's his name, Glenn Beck. Uh, you know, again, your audience 
probably will roll their eyes when I say I'm liberal left when it comes to sort of ideology. I'm not libertarian and I'm not conservative right. Um, there's a guy named Glenn Beck who does a, or used to do a conservative talk show. I know. Yeah. Not my favorite guy, whatever. Um, and he talked about one Christmas that he bought everything he possibly could that his kids wanted. And he said it was the worst Christmas ever. And I was like, ah, oh, I like you more. And like in quotation marks, I, I think that we, we can create narrative and story around the fact that if we just have all these things, it will make us happy. But in the end, the only, I would argue, the only thing that makes us happy is relationship. We are, Bitcoin fosters relational wealth above and beyond monetary wealth. And How do you mean? Explain that. Because I can meet someone in a transaction in which we meet as equals. We are, we are entirely compatible in terms of our, uh, what our goals are. Our goals aren't to game each other. Our goals aren't to, to somehow get uh, more than the... It's pure truth transacted on a network whether it is, and I kind of believe that if the, the Bitcoin network plays itself out to its, you know, to its fullest, everything will reside there. Information, there won't be any more, like... It's a black hole. Right? But in a, such a great way. Um, Wait, we just made a show with Harry Salik, who you just met. Uh-huh. And the whole concept was Bitcoin's the singularity. And there's a, it's a black hole that eventually eats everything up. Yeah, and I think, and I agree with that, and I think it eats everything up and it spits out this beautiful, like, hippie Woodstock world, <laughs> but you know. Well, it would, <laughs> and, and the, um, in the uh, metaphor, that would be spitting out, um, who's the guy in the, uh, the science, uh, brief history of time? Stephen Hawking. Stephen mm-hmm. Hawking radiation. Yeah. That was his uh, discovery was that uh, people believe nothing could come out of a black hole, but actually it can. Uh, there's a radiation that emits from a black hole, and it's called Hawking's radiation. Did you know that? I did not know that. See, I'm, I am a nerd sometimes. <laughs> um, okay, interesting. So how do you relate this to what, what is the problem that fiat money and credit and debt, what, what has this collectively done for us? Because, because that's essentially the central part to the, like, the thesis of the yeah. paper. Right, so... I trace it back to the beginning of the commercial revolution. And, you know, I mean, my understanding of the stories is a cursory understanding. I, I studied history for 35 years, but I was more interested in going to concerts and, you know, hanging out with friends. So even though I was a history teacher, I, I wasn't the mes- most erudite history teacher. Um, but the commercial revolution began essentially when artisans who were you know, uh, making gold coins of equal weight and value and holding them in their vaults were issuing paper against their gold coins, like receipts. Uh-huh. And then they started issuing more paper, uh, not only against their gold coins, but against, you know, the people who were renting out space in their vaults. And then they said, well, we can issue paper against shit that doesn't even exist. And that was credit. That was the beginning of, in my analysis, credit and the extension of credit. Now, of course, you know, there are, were situations where people would go and say, well, we all want our gold back, and then there would be a run on the, you know, the vault or the bank, because this is the beginning of fractional reserve banking. And I think that it was at that point that we started to, we call it progress, right? We say, and now we struck out across the world, and we found new places, and we created new technologies, and there was an industrial revolution, at, which in many ways was disastrous. 
mean, the impact of, of the Industrial Revolution on human ner- nervous systems had to have been absolutely catastrophic. Because? Because you go from living a rather quiet, agrarian life, and again, this is over the course of centuries, to now you're packed into cities, you're living in boarding houses, you're seeing suffering all around you, the proliferation of diseases is uh, unbelievable, new diseases that have, you know, kind of emerge, uh, and you're watching this, you're watching your children suffer, you're watching your friends suffer, and your body is going into, you know, contortions neurologically. And then my thesis is that this builds and builds and builds, and it continues to build because we continue to issue more and more credit and up the ante incrementally for how we move through the world as a species, a lot of it based on how we need to be stimulated. No longer was it good enough to um, make a certain amount of money if you were a business tycoon. You had to make more, and then you had to build a bigger mansion in Newport, Rhode Island, and, and it was just on and on and on, and then that kind of got built into us. We became, our, our sympathetic nervous systems over time became highly attuned to higher and higher levels of stimulation. How does this relate to anxiety and panic attacks? If, mm-hmm. if there's higher forms of like needs for stimulation, does this, is, this, is this related to like the increase we have seen in these kind of mental health issues? So, Anxiety attacks are when your body basically says to you, uh uh uh, yeah. you can't get away from this, you can't suppress the other, right? So, like, and then your amygdala goes, and yeah. then the adrenaline goes, and then you freak out. And I've had them, and they're no fun. Man, dude, listen, yeah. I had uh, two years of chronic anxiety, yeah. uh, panic attacks uh, to the point where I ended up in hospital, yeah. uh, awful stuff. Yeah. I can, I, when I was in college, I was a stoner. And I remember I had just broken up with, <laughs> this seems to be the, There's a pattern the story of my life. Uh, single, everybody's single. Um, although almost 60, so not nearly as... You look good for 60. Oh, Is that you. they're not drinking? Well, I had a glass of wine last night. Okay, so you still really good. Well, no, I, I raised, my kids grew up and, and, and I finished my career. So I was like, well, I can have an occasional glass of wine. But yeah, maybe 35 years of not drinking, I don't know. I exercise. There's a there's six year old there's six year old chicks on Tinder, but you could probably go lower. Yeah, I don't know. I'll go on a date, and then after the date, I'm like, oh, that was fun, and then I'm like, wait a second, does this mean I can't just run around the world and do nothing? Uh, well, if you find the right girl, she might want to do it with you. Yeah, I'll keep looking, maybe. Yeah. Um, what were we talking about? Uh, anxiety <laughs> right. and panic so attacks. So I had just had a bad breakup and I was in college and I was getting high with a bunch of friends and all of a sudden I had this wave of dizziness and nausea and I was like oh I'm gonna die and I slept in the infirmary at college for like three nights and that was the beginning of my journey with anxiety and it became over years and years and decades it became kind of a friend because I would have an anxiety attack and I was like oh what can I use any swear word on this I want? You can say what the fuck you want. Great. I, I would, uh, I would um, have that, like the anxiety attack, and I'd be like, oh, what the fuck have I done? Where is my body misaligned from my actions? What am I doing that my body is saying, uh-uh-uh? So um, it became like a little signal, like, okay, 
I'm, I'm not aligned. And I believe that anxiety, you know, sort of the physiological mm-hmm. response of our body, it's our body telling us that we've created narratives, our mind, our brain has filtered information, we've created a story or narratives around that, and it's not, it doesn't work. And the body says, no, you can't do that. Yeah, I've, I've learned to um, get from a point whereby, uh, where I, during the chronic anxiety, a panic attack would feel like a heart attack. Yeah. Like, an, like the worst ones felt like a natural heart attack to being a, able to recognize when anxiety is starting to creep up and realize it's a warning signal. It's like, uh, something's not right here. I'm drinking too much, working too hard, not sleeping. There's like some pattern right. in terms of my physiological health, which where my brain is telling me, you need to slow down, get an earlier night, not drink for the 84th night in a row, that kind of <laughs> shit. <laughs> Stop working so hard. Yeah. For me, it's, um, it's when I... Do you ever have that experience where you're watching yourself and you're looking at yourself and you're not really present? Disassociation. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, it usually begins with a moment of disassociation. We're like, what the fuck am I doing here? What am I saying? Who am I? And then my body says, you better get back. Yeah. Yeah. And so I've, you know, we all, we become more uh, attuned to anxiety. We develop strategies to go from that disassociative state to a more, related state and you know for me oftentimes it, you know if i have an anxiety attack it just involves going out for a walk and yeah. saying hello to everyone i wrote a um again i say book but you know they're not very long i wrote a book about the 20 things that i do to live a healthy life and it's a healthy neurological life and like number three is i say hi to everyone yeah yeah the, the young women in boston who go to college they don't like that so I don't say hi to them yeah. because they think I'm a creep. Yeah, if you do it on the London Underground, they're like, what the fuck do you want? What are you talking to me for? Right. But generally speaking, if you do it in Ireland, well, everyone does it in Ireland anyway. That's yeah. why I think they're all happy. That could be. Well, certainly in Denmark, when I was doing my uh, UEFA badge there, it was like, hello city. Yeah. Everybody. Hi, hi, hi. I found this different technique. So, because in different scenarios, you need different ones. Like if I have a creep of anxiety and I'm at home, I can go for a walk or I can do a, like a kind of meditation where I, I go and sit uh, upright at the back of my bed and I kind of go to sleep. It's kind of a meditation and, and that can get rid of it. Uh, but if I'm in like a fixed scenario where I can't get out of, I either do the tapping thing or, or the squeezing thing on my hand uh-huh. or I follow shapes around a room. They're the different things to control it. But I've learned coping mechanisms. Yeah. Ultimately, the best form of dealing with it I've always found is exercise. Yeah. Just exercise. And because of endorphins, yes. right? Because endorphins, by their very nature, they disarm adrenaline and cortisol. So, you know, we are, we are endorphin. I'm not, I don't like the word addicts because it has such a negative connotation. Like uh, people would say, you drink three cups of coffee in the morning, you're an addict. I'm like, well, fuck yeah. I mean, it's great. I'm, it's fabulous. Um, so I don't like that word. I think we just become attuned to physiological states. Endorphins are de-stressing because they wash away adrenaline and cortisol, generally speaking. So it makes perfect sense that you walk out on the streets of New York and there are all these damn people jogging by you, breathing on you during COVID. Um, <laughs> but uh, that didn't used to be the case. It wasn't like you know, 50 years ago, people were like, honey, I'm going out for a run. Like, what do you mean you're going out for a run? Like, when I ran, I ran to, you know, 
get somewhere. Or to strike a soccer ball or to, you know, get away from the bullies in the neighborhood. <laughs> did, did you mean a football? That too. Do you have a football team? <laughs> a, a, a team I support? Yeah. So this is... If it's fucking Tottenham. No, no. Okay. I don't like Spurs. Um, when I was coaching, I was coaching in California uh-huh. in the 90s. And a, the man with whom I was coaching had grown up a Saints fan. Or a Southampton fan. Yeah, so let me just tell you, and I think I said this to Danny. That's very unusual. We, beyond unusual, it's, it, it, it's anxiety-provoking, first. <laughs> uh, but also, it's like being like Dimsdale in the Scarlet Closet, like whipping. It's horrible. Every year, you get to the end of the year, and I say to myself, whew, didn't get into a car crash this year. Like, you're, it's all survival. None of it is joy. There is zero joy. Uh, you used to have it when you had Matt Letissier. Well, Letissier, but there wasn't joy. It wasn't like Letissier brought us to the Champions League. It wasn't like Letissier, right? I mean, I we thought- also had, what's his name? The, who was the guy who was the leading scorer, still is, in the Premiership? And he played Alan Shearer. He was a, he was a saint. Yeah, he, before he went to Blackburn. Yeah. Oh, no, hold on. Was it, no, was it? Blackburn, then Newcastle, I think. Yeah, but he, was at, he went Southampton, Blackburn, Newcastle. Right, and Blackburn won the Prem. Won the Premier League. Yeah. Didn't you have Danny Wallace? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, the pr- problem Southampton have had is they've they're just they're Premier League mediocre, and the problem with being mediocre in the Premier League is you never come to the top, mm. and you never get relegated. But actually, if you're below mediocre, sometimes you get relegated, yeah. and then you come for promotion. So teams like West Brom, who bounce between the two, <laughs> yeah, you get relegated, but then you have that year where you're kind of winning, and Southampton are just always just there in always. the middle. Yeah. They made maybe like five or six years ago, they made the Europa League. Yeah, they did. And then I think they lost to a team from Denmark. Probably. By the way. No wonder you have anxiety. Yeah, I, I'm gonna, <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm sitting here in the light. And, well, um, I predict that Denmark wins the World Cup this year. Yeah, it's a ridiculous idea. I know it is. But let me, let me just briefly <laughs> tell you why. In the, Euro, in the European Championships, they were the most organized, the most dangerous. Granted, they had a, a, a exceptional motivation but they were the most dangerous in terms of their organization on attack, and they were difficult to break down. And England were lucky to beat them because it was 1-0, and I think this well, didn't... I was, at that, I was at that game. So wasn't there a penalty toward the end? There was... I can't remember if that was the equalizer. Or, Harry Kane? Yeah, no, I but that, I think it was, um, it was kind of a bit of a dive by uh, Raheem Sterling, I yeah. think. Was that right? Am I right, Danny? I can't remember. Yeah. yeah. So this year, someone will win the World Cup who's never won it before. Do you know? About, you know do you know that uh, Denmark once won the Euros? Yes, yes, I do. Was it ninety-two? I think it was a ninety-two yeah. or eighty-eight. And it's a really weird story because they shouldn't even have been in the tournament. It was the year the Balkans War uh, broke out, and oh. Yugoslavia were removed from the tournament, and so Denmark were given access. And then ended up winning it. That's oh, wow. fascinating stuff. So, your listeners, if you want to put money, I'm just kidding. No, no, no. I'm a fucking dead bug. Okay, before we carry on with the interview, I do have a message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm not selling at the moment. I'm only buying. And I'm also using the Gemini app for buying the dips. And I have set up a DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy. And Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. 
Now, Gemini are running a special offer for listeners of What Bitcoin Did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade over $100 or more on Gemini. So if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Next up, it's Cake Wallet, who I have recently started using as my mobile wallet for Bitcoin. Now, Cake Wallet is a non-custodial wallet, which means it protects both your security and privacy because it doesn't share important information with unnecessary third parties. With Cake Wallet, not only can you hodl Bitcoin, but you can easily pay privately with Monero. It has advanced features for Bitcoin, including coin control and automatic address switching. The app is also designed to make it very easy for you to set up your wallet and back up your keys. If you want to find out more, please head over to cakewallet.com or search for Cake Wallet in the Apple or Google app stores. Next up, we have a BCB group. BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am now a customer of BCB too. They heard about the difficulty I was having finding a payment services provider that understands Bitcoin and reached out to me. And now BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are now also expanding globally. They've also got this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. And if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you do want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out more about what they do, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Also, today we have Compass Mining, who are not just a sponsor. I am a customer of theirs, and I am back mining Bitcoin. And actually, do you know what? I've actually been back mining Bitcoin for about nine months with Compass, and I've already mined over 0.7 Bitcoin which has pretty much paid off two of my S19s already. And it's so good to be back mining. It's been a really interesting year. It's forced me to learn a lot more about mining again. Now, anyone can start mining with Compass. And to help you, Compass has launched their Compass score to help you make informed decisions about your next mining purchase. The score highlights how good each ASIC deal is, and it's based on a number of factors. Price, mine age, difficulty, hashing power, and the current Bitcoin price. Compass has made mining accessible to everyone, and as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. Now, if you are interested in mining, if you want to find out more, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G.io. Okay, fine. So, as humans, we want or desire or need stimulation, but in this world of uh, debt, credit, uh, uh, running through industrialization and commercialization, we now have a world which is all about more, 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 right. need, need, need. And that has created a kind of moving goalpost for stimulation, yeah. different types of stimulation, um, and not, not so much natural stimulation, not like, um, <sighs> how do I put it a different way? The happiest year of my life in the last 20 years was the year after my company collapsed. After mm. my divorce happened, my company collapsed, I took a year off work. And in that year, I decided not to work at all. Um, and uh, at first, I was very bored. Didn't know what the fuck to do. How, how do you fill a day? Uh, and so I started making food. 
which I'd never done mm. before to the like every single meal. And then I would go to the gym and just do whatever was on spinning, yoga. I was doing Pilates with like with all the old ladies. Uh, I was walking my kids to school and back and uh, spending time with them in the evenings. And I was reading and watching films. It's the happiest day of my life. I wasn't chasing anything. Just day to day, I was just doing what I wanted to do in that day. And it was my happiest year. There was no massive highs and no massive lows. Right. Since then, I've built this new career, which I'm so lucky to have. I get to do some of the most amazing things, but I have bigger highs and bigger lows. Right. You know, I'm away from my kids for weeks on end, which sucks um, with these retrobates. <laughs> I'm uh, feeling the pressure of having to make shows and make films and... And somebody loves something I do and it's great and then they don't and it sucks and I get shouted on Twitter and I hate it. And then there's lots of highs and lows and the, the, the stimulation is a roller coaster. Yeah. Whereas before it was just a slow moving train. Um, how do you explain that? So I can relate and I, um, I have always sought stimulation in, in myriad ways, uh, whether it was coaching on, on the football pitch, uh, whether it was traveling around the country playing music, whether it was, you know, I was a storm chaser for many years living in Texas and chasing tornadoes. The adrenaline and the sort of the dopamine hits from it, that was, that worked for me. I got to a certain point in my life and it stopped working. All it did was make my heart pound, and it, but the stimulation wasn't... So here's the thing. I'm homeless. And when I say that, I don't mean like I'm, you know... Uh, in, in a tent. In, in trouble. Um, and, uh, but what, I don't... What, what do you mean by that, though? I don't have a home. But out of choice? Yeah. And I don't have stuff. My entire life fits into a backpack. T tell, tell me more about this. Hold on. Yeah. You don't, like, w so people should know, we've not met before. We have not. You emailed me and you sent me a paper. And by the way, like, like I say, we get a, how many, how many a month, how many people ask on the show a month, Danny? Hundreds? Hundreds. Yeah, like hundreds. I mean, some we don't even read. Uh, but when anyone sends me a paper, I'll at least read their email and the intro. And if I'm grabbed by it, I'll read a bit more. And then, if I really think it's something worth looking at, I'll send it to Danny and Neil. And sometimes they'll come back and they'll be like, yay, nay. And, and actually this one, you weren't sure, were you? I wasn't 100% sure, to be fair. I wasn't 100% sure. Oh, I, I, I totally assumed that I would get an email saying, really interesting, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, but it was this idea of the fiat brain and I could relate to it. I, I, have, um, I, I went through very bad mental health problems after the break of my marriage. Very dark times. Mm. Addictions, depression... Uh, trips to hospital, like it was fucking awful, yeah. like awful, and uh, just, just, I can't tell you how rough it was. And uh, I came back out of it, okay. Um, but when you talked about this fiat brain, I'm always conscious of the fact that, like, I've got this new life, which is just like I feel so blessed to have. But I always remember that year, yeah. and it, I was still happier that year because it was a much simpler life. And when you talk about that, I think about uh, Steve Jobs. He didn't have shit in his house. He just didn't have stuff. And do you know who else I also think about? Do you know who Jiddu Krishnamurti is? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So 
uh, during those bad times, I was reading a lot about Jesus. I have a tattoo of him on my leg. Yes. Um, and he, he talks about the accu- accumulation of stuff. Like when you buy a house, you have to have a garden. There's a garden you have to keep. And then you have to have a fence and you have to ensure the fence is fixed. You know, and you can, you can carry on. And in, I, I guess like I would add to this, you have to have a kitchen. And in your kitchen, you have to have plates and you have to have like food. And like there's just accumulation of all this stuff. And with stuff, there's stuff you have to then think about and look after and prepare. And like he, he always says you need a much simpler life. Yeah. Actually, he also says you shouldn't fall in love because love, love is mainly pain. I am pain. totally with him 100%. Well, you can come back to love. <laughs> but, but the idea is that like this simpler life. Yeah. And so, by the way, when you when I said, "Come on," I I don't know anything about you. <laughs> I don't know you're home, homeless. And you, this is out of choice. What, when did this start? Um, it's always been my my impulse. So my adulthood, like even though I had a successful teaching career, I was a school administrator. I worked really hard to create the illusion that I was kind of part of the mainstream. But I'm not. I've always been drawn to minimalism, even though I'll go through periods of time where I'm you know, desperate for stimulation. So I'll, I'll buy a you know, $2,000 guitar, and it'll be fabulous for like a week. And then it's like, well, fuck, now I've shelled out two grand for a guitar that I so don't need and that no longer, I don't get anything from it, so I give it away. Um, I, over the course of time, have pared away and pared away. So I sleep, you know, I crash at friends' houses. This past last five months, a friend of mine who runs a school said, hey, I need a grown-up to live in the dorm to take care of the kids. I was like, fine, I'll sleep in, you know, it's a dorm room, right, with a, you know, a little shower and a little kitchenette. I move around, and I have kids. My, you know, my daughter is grown, and she's traveling around Europe, and she's in college, and she does her thing. And my son is still, um, he's 19, and he has a disability. He still goes to high school in Vermont and um, lives with his mom, but I see him, you know, every month or two. And we talk every day (laughs) on FaceTime. So I have a phone. Uh, I pay for their phones. Other than that, I have nothing. Literally, I move around, I spend time with friends, I, um, I put everything into my backpack, and when I start to accumulate stuff, like this past five months, I accumulated a coffee maker, and I accumulated a little hot pot, and then I give it away. I'm like, I don't want this. I, huh. I don't want any of this stuff. So, Have you seen the film Into the Wild? Yeah, I, I read the book, Okay, and... I saw some of the movie and I found it really troubling. Interesting. Very Why? upsetting. There was something about his minimalism that struck me as desperate, like a desperation to be away from, you know, the throwing away of money. Like there was something about it that felt sad. F- my minimalism feels freeing. That but, was my, proje- that's a projection of but, sorts. But as a, f- as a film or the book, like, did you, did you get different things from the film and the book? Um, I don't know. Yeah. The, 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 the film was with, who played? I can't remember, but Eddie Vedder wrote the soundtrack from Pearl Jam. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, and I love the soundtrack. And whenever I listen to the soundtrack, I think back to the film. And I think back to him getting rid of his car and pissing his parents off and just going off into the wild. And I just often think I would like to do this. I but do. I, th- I think it's different when you're, you know, 19 or 20. No, I want to do it at 43. Right. No, I think it's better. 
again, these are all projections because I'm basically saying, hey, everybody should live my life. Um, I think it's better when you're older because I know that I'm doing it because it, it fits me neurologically. Hmm. Come, always comes back to my neurology and my body. M- my body cannot contend with possessions. My body cannot contend with uh, intimate long-lasting relationships. My body cannot contend with being in a workplace and having lots of colleagues and having to negotiate. It just goes like this. It always has been that way. And now that I'm older, I can honor it and say, yeah, what the fuck? That's fine. Now, I, 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 we're going to come back to love. I, I appreciate this because going from that very simple life to this more complicated life, I've, got, now I've collected people to help get stuff done. So Danny is a co- part of the collection. I don't mean that de- in a derogative <laughs> way. What I mean is, I it's the like best part of the collection. Uh, I don't know, man. It's like it's hard to not, not give it to Emma. But like, I don't mean it in a derogative way. I mean Danny's fucking brilliant. Like he's one of the most brilliant people, and he runs this part. Okay, but I've collected people that help me do things. But I've collected a podcast, and I've collected a film career, and I've now collected a football club, and yeah. And there's a build-up of stuff, and there was a time. I mean, Danny, Danny knew it uh, when we were in Austin about. We were in Austin like eight weeks ago. In March, yeah. I, I was in a bad way, right? Mm-hmm. Because there was a time it wasn't good. No, I had a lawsuit. I had a football club I was trying to take over. Uh, I had like a collection of all this shit I'd collected that I now had to, to deal with. And sometimes I think of a simpler life and a simple like. Mm. Could I just? Could I, I? I can't, because I'm scared. Like scared, but like, could I just let this all go, live a simpler life, knowing that year I, the happiest year I have, and which has taken me to my point is like, have we created an illusion of what happiness is, that is keeping us away from what happiness, the happiness we really should be living? And your, what you just said is is. That's a cognitive thing, right? Yeah. Like, we create the illusion because we create the narrative, the story. And Instagram is the, like, for me, is the perfect example of that illusion. We, we, we give the world this illusion of happiness. Here's, all the, here's a snap of every happy moment I'm having. Here, look, I'm in New York. Here, I'm looking at a football match. Here, I'm at a concert. I'm always happy. And then our friends are looking going, oh, my God, they're always happy. I need to be happy. Right. Have we created, like, this, this is this the collective Issue we've created. Yeah, that's a good. Yeah, I like that. I think that the collecting there is that keeping up with the Joneses part of that collective sort of like, oh, they must be much happier because they have these things and are, are doing these activities. I must not be as happy. I should aspire to that. But it's also we are we are so highly attuned to the need for a physiological, and I do this like when I do that sort of gesture in front of my body, it's like this is our nervous system, our vagus nerve, our, the entirety of our nervous system. We're so attuned to needing more and more just to feel okay. That baseline has gone up and up and up that we are, we're like pushing ourselves. We keep pushing and pushing and pushing to get that baseline stimulation. And so when I talk about my minimalism, look, when I heard you owned a football team, yeah. I was fucking jealous as fuck. I was like, oh, that is so awesome. And then I played out the fantasy in my head. I wish I had 
you know, a great deal of wealth. And then I would get a football team. And then I, and then I kept playing it out. And I think you uh, overestimate how much Bedford costs. <laughs> I was looking at them in the league. I was kind of yeah. like trying to figure it I don't. You tell me what you think, and I'm going to tell you the reality because it's an interesting point. What it cost? No, no, no. In terms of like where you run through the idea of owning a football club right. in your head. All right. So, and, and I, I played out the sort of the game, you same, the same game I play out when, you know, it's like, oh, I wish I was a famous musician. And I, I, I play it out and it always gets to the point where I'm like, nope, it's not, it, I can literally feel my body going, like, I can't even hold down, I can't even have a job anymore. And it's not because, you know, I'm not competent. It's because my body says, nope. Um, but I'm still like, it's still like way deep down in me. I, I'm the guy, still the guy who, you know, seeks stimulation. I'm still the guy who goes on dating websites and tries to go on dates. And then I go on a few dates and I'm like, nope. Um, I'm still the guy who, you know, fantasizes about, you know, I play the lottery. Why the hell would I play the lottery? If I won the lottery, what? I would be miserable. I would give it all away. And then I would be like, giving it away, I would think this is going to make me feel great because I'm going to give all this money away. It's very altruistic of me, isn't it? Oh. Well, I would just be getting the stimulation from the false, everybody being, oh, Dan, thank you for the money. It's not relational. It's like, it's just, you know, dopamine hits. Let me tell you about the football club, but I'll lead up to it <laughs> again. Let's use the benchmark, the happy year, where I wasn't working and I woke up every day and said, what do I want to do today? I'll go down the gym, I'll go spinning, I'll go for a walk, I'll read this book, I'll watch this. I would go to the cinema on my own, which by the way, if you ever do that, book a ticket online because I didn't and I got to the cinema, I was like, oh, ticket for one please and I felt like a fucking loser. <laughs> oh, I do it all the yeah. time. But I know, but I would go to the cinema, I just did what I want and I would sleep well I would I was just happy it was brilliant and I get back into work and it becomes new goals okay got a podcast well I need the downloads to go up because if the downloads go up and get a sponsor I've got a sponsor I need the downloads to go up so I get, need another sponsor like that creates that kind of like uh, business growth mindset into that mm. um, we just had our third biggest month on record and I'm like the fuck is not our second biggest month on record? Like, <laughs> you know, so th there's that constant chase there. And then I accumulate a football club. It's my dream, my dream to own my local football club. This is amazing. It's mainly been like fucking hard work and shit. <laughs> yeah. People yelling at me, people pissed off, us losing. And like, all I'm thinking about now is we've got to win the league. Right. We have to win the league. And then what's going to happen the following season? It's like, we need to win this league. So I've I've collected these things that have created these new pressures, that have created these things that affect sleep, happiness, you know, physical, mental health. And I don't know why, but I've done it. Yeah. But is it not human? Is this not like the human nature? Is, is it, isn't this even like evolutionary nature? Is this what that got us to leap out of the oceans, to grow flippers, to walk on land, to then no. create fire and... Isn't there like this thing that's within us? No, I, I, I don't buy that. Okay. I don't buy the, the argument that like we're driven to innovate or we're driven to grow. Or I think that we, um, and again, like this comes back to the fiat brain and why Bitcoin is the savior. Yes. If, you know, down the road, hopefully, right? Um, I, you know, I look at, so you used the word happy. You know, you yeah. were happy. I, I don't, I try not to use 
I don't mean to be patronizing. I try not to use words like that because I'm simply observing where I feel the most at home. So when I say at home, it's like literally at home in my body. I don't, like happiness is kind of this, you know, it's a story that we create. I was happy. But you were, you know, you might be at home in your body with all of this, you know, stuff you've accumulated and the show and the podcast and the football club. That might be your homeostatic reference point. It's just that it gets to the point where it's really stressful. It can be. And the cortisol is coursing through your body and the adrenaline is coursing through your body and your body says, oh, we can't do this. Well, the base is higher. The base is higher. Because what's happened was I was stimulated. I had everything I needed. Like life was good. Now I've got all this other stuff that I really wanted. There's higher highs and lower lows. Which I translate into there's... um, you have pl- times when sort of that adrenaline, noradrenaline, endorphins, that thing, it's really maxed out and it yeah. feels fantastic. It's fucking great. It's great, right? I mean, why do people take meth and feel, I mean, I haven't taken meth, haven't taken meth. Um, it feels great, right? I mean, people do these things for a reason. Well, uh, drugs have their tolerance. And to get back to that point. You, right, you, and you keep, right? You keep, but they say, right. they say about heroin, a drug I've never done, but they say, just chasing the dragon, right? You're always yeah. trying to get back to that point. You can never get there. It's unless you take fentanyl, right? And then, right? I yeah. mean, and then you die because yeah. you're, right. Um, so, yeah. So, I think that homeostatic, you know, sort of that reference point in terms of the fiat brain, we've escalated. You know, yeah. we've, we've, over the course of generations and centuries, it's gotten higher and higher. And even over those hundreds of years, or even just, you know, for individuals, you have a certain reference point. It doesn't work anymore, so you up the ante. It doesn't work anymore, so you up the ante. But it takes a toll on your body. In my paper, I cited some statistics about heart attacks. It used to be that heart attacks were the dominion of 60 and 70-year-olds, 80-year-olds, right? It's now the dominion of 30 and 40-year-olds. Like, what the hell is that about? So my belief is that's because there's just too much cortisol, too much adrenaline in our systems. And a lot of it is because we need speed. We need more and more just to feel okay. And that is a function of fiat money. It's a function of a credit and debt economic system that essentially pushes us and facilitates us doing more and more. Like the whole idea of a credit score makes me want to vomit. Nails, head spin around, the exorcist, the whole works. Like the idea that you should aspire to having a higher credit rating so that you can go into more debt and, and destroy your nervous system. Like that's fucked up. Yeah, that is fucked up. Hmm. Okay, so how does Bitcoin fix this? Bitcoin. Yeah. And, and over the course of time when I came to this realization that Bitcoin fixes this, I literally freaked out. Like my friends of whom I have a few, uh, they, you know, and I've written like these little things and I give them to them and they're like, you know, most of my friends are liberal left ideologically and they, they're like, but environment, but, you know, libertarian, but, you know, uh, ransomware, et cetera. And I'm like, you gotta understand beyond Alex Gladstein and sort of the, his case uh, and beyond like, for example, I have a lot of friends who are, you know, women who are pro-choice, and, and I said, you know, yeah, Bitcoin will be an interesting, interesting thing 
an interesting material way to transact if indeed abortion becomes illegal in certain states. And if you um, talk about it, if you pursue it, if you're a doctor, you'll, your, your bank account will be seized, just like you know, Trudeau seized the bank accounts of the, the truckers, etc. Um, I think Bitcoin fixes this because if we get to a point where nobody can game the monetary system, everybody has, like, there's no, you can't be dishonest anymore. Right now, we have deep fake videos, right? Like, and they're getting better and better. It's like, nobody can trust anything. Our former president, uh, Donald Trump, can just say, that's a lie, that's a lie. And people will say, well, it must be a lie. Oh, you know, they made this video, that's a lie. But Bitcoin doesn't get rid of deep fakes. It doesn't get rid of uh, Donald Trump lying. It doesn't get rid of those things. I believe that uh, under cause, because we're talking about collective memory too. Yeah. I believe that over generations, not only will the Bitcoin protocol vet information as well, like sort of be an information transactional network, but it, but we will get to a point where the the memory of our fiat brains will fade okay so that my it's like in an evolutionary stage like yeah like uh um kind of our hopes and expectations three four hundred years ago would be quite simple our hopes and expectations now is that not everyone but people want to be like rich successful or just relatively well off or do a particular job yada yada um uh, and chase the money and chase debt to get there under a bitcoin system it doesn't eliminate it, but it just reduces it. Well, I don't... There's still, there will still be ambition. Right. So Jeff Booth, right, he always talks about it's, it's impossible, very hard to analyze the future because you're in the present and that's the paradigm. Right? And it's distorted. And yeah, and, and it's very difficult to have imagination because your imagination is based upon what you see now and you're, you're in, influenced by that. So when I think about Bitcoin, I think, okay, let's have lots of imagination. So let's think of a time, you know, 150 years from now, where my, my daughter's great-great-great-grandchildren are living in a world that over the course of generations, the, the memory of uh, irredeemable currency, the memory of, of debt and credit as a way to, you know, as an accelerant, as a neurological accelerant, has gone away slowly. And once that collective memory fades... What are we left with? A lot of people, this is where I, have, I take issue with libertarianism. I think in some ways libertarianism is saying, um, I just want to do what I want to do, and I don't want anybody to really control me. I just want to be free to do what I want to do. And, okay, I understand that, but we are nothing without everybody else around us and on the planet. It's not we want them to do what we want them to do or tell them to do, but we want to be able to relate to them and, and to commune with them uh, and to interact with them. I don't, I don't think they aren't ideas that aren't, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. You're probably right. Yeah, I think, you, I think you're talking a little bit like a libertarian. I, 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 would, I feel again, like perhaps because yeah. you, you feel left-leaning and often libertarians 
come feel like they're more on the right side of the political spectrum. That's something you're trying to push away from. But I also feel like you're talking like a libertarian. I don't think you're wrong. And I think, I believe that there's truth in the fact that because I grew up in a community liberal left and sort of that's my, that's my frame of reference, that sometimes when I hear folks, you know, espouse libertarian ideals, I, I look at who they are and I say, well, you're not really liberal. You're not really talking about personal freedom. You're using personal freedom as a, as a way to, to ag- you know, for self-aggrandizement. So I think that you're probably right. But there, there, is, there is right libertarians, there's left libertarians as well. I, th- I feel like you talk like a, from the libertarian left. I would call it the communitarian left. Okay. But, fine. again, maybe we're, we're parsing words. Um, yeah, I, like I think it's, I think it's having, like when Bitcoin provides me with this unbelievable sense of hope and imagination. Because if we can get rid of, over the course of generations, debt, a debt and credit-based financial system, this idea of growth, 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 uh-huh. and we can slow down, then our neurological systems slow down. Then that reference point slows down. doesn't mean that technology can't continue to advance, but it means that we slow down, we get healthier, and more and more people are living the life that you lived in that year, that uh-huh. blissful year, but they're not thinking of it in terms of, I had this blissful year. It's just life. I, go, I walk five to ten miles every day. Me too. My knees and ankles don't love me for it anymore because I played too much soccer. But Football. I, that too. Um, I, <laughs> I just, I just if, if I say football, it just doesn't sound right. Uh, but I do it because it, it just sits in my body right and it uh-huh. slows me down. Uh-huh. And I, I do have this belief that Bitcoin provides us with once the world slows down, we get back to that in the last part of the paper, back to the garden that Joni Mitchell was talking about. Interesting. Talk to me about fiat money as a dialectic monolith. Bitcoin is the benevolent solution. Right. This is in here <laughs> from my brother. Uh, my brother's a researcher on the show. Uh-huh. And he, uh, he said he enjoyed that article. Oh, good. Thanks. Yeah, so actually I put it, I put it as an addendum in the... Yeah. Right. Um, so... The idea of a, of a dialectic is, is you have a thesis, and then you have an antith- antith- antithesis that yeah. pushes back against it. The antithesis becomes the thesis, right? So, and then it's like that cycle. So, right, so like the, the Woodstock generation, yeah. they become the Wall Street bankers, and then the new children are pushing back against them, and then their children become whatever, you know. The, the crypto people, you know, the, you know, the people on YouTube who do those silly crypto, like the videos about like, oh my gosh, Luna's going to a billion, you know, that kind of stuff. Like Pomp. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Where did he go, by the way? Like, it's, it seems like it's only his brothers now. What do you want about? Pomp. Did I he have disappear? no idea. Well, I don't know. They just look very similar. <laughs> Maybe he's accepted that, the, that he's number two now. Yeah. Well, he should. I mean, yeah. He should. Yeah. Um, but Bitcoin is the absolute idea. And the absolute idea in this dialectical theory is that it breaks the cycle of the dialectic. So when Bitcoin, beca- when we become a hyper-Bitcoinized standard, no longer will the children have to push back against their parents and sort of this cycle because, 
the absolute ideal will break us out of that, you know, the, and again, it's, it's, it's fiat money informed, mm. right? So the, it, the reason that it's fiat money informed, it's because the, all the kids, they go to Woodstock and then they are compelled to join the human race and then they get jobs and then they become lawyers and they become financiers and, and all of a sudden they've eschewed that whole existence that they had that was so whatever it was, and they've become part of the, you know, got to get more, got to make the money, et cetera. And the beauty of Bitcoin is that it breaks that fiat's, fiat's dialectical cycle, and it becomes the absolute idea where the dialectic ends. You know, there was a book, a book written by Fukuyama, Francis Fukuyama, who wrote a book called The End of History. And he wrote, essentially, his thesis was that when communism fell and the Soviet Union fell and that all went away, that uh, that was the end of history. Now we were just going to have liberal Western democracies and this was the paradigm that was going to exist forever. And my argument is that Bitcoin is the end of history. If, over the course of these generations, I mean, you know, I'm talking pretty big swaths of time, if we are fortunate enough to become a hyper-Bitcoinized world to the point of our collective memory of fiat and what fiat has been and is, and our collective memory of credit and debt as a way to run the world goes away. We reach the singularity. Yes. Yeah. I'm not sure I agree with this one point, though. So, in a hyper-Bitcoinized world, money is no longer an expression of power. I, I disagree with that, because I think it's human nature to, not for everyone, but certain people to want to accumulate power or express power. Yeah. And, and we will have different levels of wealth, and some people will express power with that wealth. Yeah. That one I don't buy. But I, I buy the potential that the swings or the the gaps between the rich and the poor are smaller. So the scale at which people can express power will be different. And I also believe people could will, will find it easier to revolt against expressions of power as a collective. And I come back to neurology. Yeah. I believe, you know, I, I wrote a, a piece once about, like about these four words, feel, believe, think, and know. And it's interesting to, I used to do this exercise with my students, like, uh-huh. what, do you, what do you feel, what do you believe, what do you think, what, you, what do you know? And I would pose questions to them, and they would say, well, I know this to be true, and then I would say, are you sure you know it, or do you just believe, you know, we would kind of play that. I, I, I believe that in the future, in a Bitcoinized world, how we express power changes, and I don't have, obviously, any data to, to back this up. And part of it is, you know, hopefulness. And part of it is um, trust. Because I don't see human beings as being, I don't believe in the idea that human beings are, are by nature aggressive and by nature uh, exploitative. I think, that that's, I think that that's a rationalization that the fiat world and, uh, you know, and, and sort of people in power are, are able to use to, to defend a certain belief I'm, system i'm not sure i think i think the males are aggressive testosterone yeah adrenaline but again back to neurology like what if it, what if we got to a point in a hyper bitcoinized world you know where collective zen state well where the 
over the course, again, like this is big, big chunks of time where adrenaline and the, the expression, like the expression of adrenaline and the feelings generated by it didn't work. Like people who were aggressive were so alienated from, from the mainstream that it wasn't, you know, people who had power and tried to, to exploit others based upon that power, the, the rush that they might have gotten was so, it, it, it didn't work anymore. Well, we kind of have that at the moment. If you're aggressive to the level of criminal violence, you are excluded from society. Right. Um, but, but also, we have aggression within competitive sports, which is celebrated. Right. Uh, we have aggression, political aggression. We have uh, business aggression. I'm, again, I, th I, think, I think the extremes... My brother always t said this thing to me when I was a kid, and I, I, like, I like it a lot. I've always bought into it. He said, life is about averages. Um, you know, if you go and get drunk, you're going to have a hangover. You know, if you want to go and eat a load of sugar, you're going to get fat. <laughs> you know, but if you go out and run, you're going to feel good. He's like, you know, the hard things you get the benefits from and the easy things you get the negatives from. So you've got to try and get that even state. I feel like the end of times of fiat, we start to see these crazy charts where, you know, whether it's Lawrence Lepard or Lynn Alden or any kind of macro analyst, they're sharing with us like crazy charts with relation to money or derivatives of money or parts of the economic system. You know, as the system is starting to break, things are getting extreme. I see the opposite can happen whereby in a Bitcoinized world where we have no distortion of money, things start to level out a bit more. We get more into the averages and, and away from the extremes. And I can see that with your point in terms of the expression of power and I can see that um, on the previous point. Yeah, with regards to aggression. I'm not sure it always it goes. Yeah, and, and yeah, I mean, I'm, again, this is, these are ideas yeah. that are, I would think, pretty far-fetched. They're far-fetched in the sense that I'm extrapolating well out into, you know, Star Trek land. Yeah. Right? Like when, when, when Captain Picard says in one of the movies, well, you know, this woman says, who's been from the past, she says, well, how do you make money in the future? And Picard says, well, there is no money in the future. We, we don't do things for money. We do them to better ourselves and humanity. And she's like, what? No money. So I, I feel like for us, we look at Star Trek and we say, or, you know, Picard, and, and we say, well, that's just, you know, that's just science fiction. And I say, yeah, but Bitcoin is this fusion of science fiction and an evolving reality. And it's impossible to know what that evolving reality could look like. like. Literally, in a world in which this experiment with commercial, you know, with credit and debt, and then this really messed up experiment with irredeemable currency, if that goes away, and it's gonna, I believe it's going to take a long time to go away. It's not like we're going to wake up one day and governments are going to say, well, we're just going to, you know, it's, it's going to be a mess. As that collective memory fades, who knows how it'll impact us neurologically, and who knows what we'll become? Hmm. I feel that's a very good time. Uh, end of point, starting point, end of point. Maybe also a starting point. <laughs> uh, Dan, that was fascinating. Um, 
I'm going to share everything you've written out with the listeners. Uh, is there any way you want to send people to? Do you want them to follow you on Twitter or anything? So Twitter's the only social media I use, okay. and, I, and I only talk about Bitcoin. So literally, my, I'm at Dan Weintraub, and I just I'd make comments about Bitcoin, and I, you know, that's it. All right. Well, listen, I appreciate you coming in. Um, I, I really enjoyed talking about this. I didn't agree with everything, but like, I, I see where you're going with this. Um, and we will share this out in the show notes to see what people think of it. But appreciate you, man. And you. Thanks for the time. Okay. Thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to reach out to me, please do get in touch. My email is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I do try and reply to all messages, but you can also go and check out my Telegram group. There's a bunch of people in there always talking about Bitcoin. All right, I will see you all very, very soon.